Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Jan Schillich from the Novo Nordirsk Foundation Center for Stem Cell Medicine on the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the Gordon Institute at the University of Cambridge in 2015. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Edith Hurd at the Institut Curie in Paris. And since 2020, you are associate professor and group leader at the Novo Nordisk Foundation Cancer uh, Center for Stem Cell Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off, start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? I think for me, the beginning, really the moment when I really started getting interested in biology was probably high school. Before that, um, actually math was my favorite favorite topic. And I guess in high school, it just became a little bit more difficult and biology seemed a little <laughs> bit more approachable. But it's also maybe a typical story of having just a very great um, biology teacher and she was quite inspirational. And how I really got from biology into, into science was really, I think, in Poland, so I, I come from Poland, and, um, and in Poland we have this um, in competitions called Olympiads, and there were, I was taking part in the biology Olympiad. And the reason why I wanted to do it is because you had to do a small project, a small research project, and write a report um, in high school about it, and then defend it. And I just loved the process of it. Um, it was a bit of a disaster; results didn't really work out, but. Um, But I think it, that's really the moment where I got hooked. Um, so coming to a science that centers around understanding how metabolic and epigenetic mechanisms uh, cooperate to regulate transcription during early development. Um, to start off, I want to, to go back to the year 2015. Uh, this year, a paper was published in eLife looking at the effect of gene on chromatin. Um, could you maybe give, give a brief introduction to gene so gene is a histone methyl transferase that puts down um, the lysine methylation um, on lysine 9 of histone H3, and especially the dimethylation uh, mark, uh, rather than the trimethylation mark, which is a typical mark of um, constitutive heterochromatin. Um, so there has been quite a lot of studies actually about gene before um, in showing that it's quite important in regulating plasticity of cells, let's say, uh, potential um, of cells. Um, there has also been work um, in vivo, um, but really understanding on a molecular level um, how it might be regulating chromatin um, in utero, in um, um, in the embryos was not really well known. And that's a bit um, where my PhD uh, project started. So we, we will will have had, so, <laughs> because I recorded it last week and it will be published before your interview, but uh, we also talked about gene in, in uh, neurons. Um, and uh, yeah, what is the difference in the different areas of the body in, in, in respect to gene Yes, well... I think gene in general, I mean, molecularly, it plays a similar role. But um, what is quite intriguing for me is that, you know, we, when we knocked it out, we found that it is responsible for the deposition of this specific mark, H3K9 dimethylation, 
in around, let's say, one third of the genome. So vast amount um, of the genome contains this mark and is pulled down by put down by uh, G9A. And yet it has very specific, um, uh, it regulates a very specific subset of genes and the subset of genes that it regulates will depend on the context and in, in, in which, um, um, where it is uh, being expressed. So in the brain, it will be quite different genes than to the ones that we were studying so early in development. So I think, I guess that's kind of links to a general mm. problem in epigenetics. And that is how a really a mark that is so widespread in the genome, um, can be regulating a very specific subset of genes because um, it's not modifying a very sub specific subset of genes. It's modifying a lot of genes and yet it's functional at only a very small subset. So I guess that's the question of how specificity in tissue and in specific tissues could be achieved. So when we go uh, back to the mark that it puts on chromatin G9A, um, it's H3K9 dimethylation. Um, It's also thought to be heterochromatic, but what is like the difference of H3K9 dimethylation to like marks like H3K9 trimethylation and like other marks that also are mm. present in heterochromatin? Well, I think dimethylation is just much more widespread. And when you profile it, you can just, I mean, just by eyeballing it, you can see how different it is. K9 uh, trimethylation will be deposited on specific regions and it will form these kind of peaks that you, you find typically in chromatin. So regions that are enriched. While when you look at K9 dimethylation, um, it looks more like a blanket. It covers really large swathes of the genome. So, um, and it covers on not only heterochromatin, but actually it covers a lot of facultative heterochromatin. So regions of the, of the genome that have to be expressed at specific developmental time points that encompass many genes, um, and yet in this context are silent. So that is quite different. Um, also, P9 trimethylation is really known to be very important for regulating many of the repetitive fractions of the genome. So the repeat elements, transposable elements, And I think K9 dimethylation plays a very minor role in that kind of regulation. I mean, there is some, there's definitely some specific transposable elements that are regulated by G9A or H3K9 dimethylation, but it, it does not play this typical role of um, constitutive heterochromatin marks that would be repressing what people used to call the junk DNA, but obviously now no one calls it that anymore. <laughs> so it's more like a, a primer for then silencing? I mean, you know, it's, I think it's a problem with marks. Um, how do you really understand what a specific mark do, does? And to do that, you normally knock out the, the enzyme um, that puts it down. And that's always a problematic because this enzyme could be doing also other things than modifying chromatin. Um, so from correlation studies, indeed, it looks like a quite an early mark that is accumulating during silencing. Um, and specifically at a developmental window that we worked on, which is implantation. So when a blastocyst grows into the uterus of the mother, at this point, it, we found that it accumulates really sways of H3K9 dimethylation. It's the same time that DNA methylation accumulates. And yet K9 di accumulates really rapidly. And what we found is it starts going into regions that used to be euchromatic, used to be expressed, And now it's basically one of the feedback loops that allows for efficient silencing, efficient repression. And what we found, it was also regulating some, um, some of the enhancers to, to really turn them off. 
So there was this really transient moment where um, enhancers would contain this repressive histone modification, but still retained histone acetylation, which is normally linked to um, transcriptional activation. So yes, but I wouldn't really call it a trigger. Um, I would call it maybe a feedback loop in, in silencing, something right. that reinforces silencing. So there are indeed like uh, histones or nucleosomes that have both marks, like the activating and the repressive marks? Yes, we do. I mean, we, we looked, we did um, um, basically chip followed by a chip um, for another. Um, so chromatin emitter precipitation for lysine 9-dimethylation followed by a chip for acetylation of histones. And we found indeed that there is nucleosomes that are uh, containing both marks. But this is transient. It does not. It does not happen in steady state. So if you just grow stem cells in vitro um, um, and keep them in one media, you would never find it. You have to look at a transition stage where where cells are very rapidly changing their uh, transcriptional uh, activation and repression. Yeah, this does in really in, indeed make sense to to have like in a transition states then both um, thing when the cell has decided where to go, right? So yes, exactly. Is there something that we missed on your work on G9A um, that uh, you still can can share? Well, I think we had also had a collaborative follow-up um, eLife paper, I think uh, two or three years later, where um, we looked much more specifically in vivo what happens if you lose G9A very early on in development. So we're, we're using so-called maternal zygotic knockouts. So here, you know, we're not only depleting, uh, knocking out the gene coming um, encoded in the zygote, but we also deleted already in the oocyte. And in that way, the oocyte does not have any gene on the RNA or protein level. And what we found is that then we're getting a, a phenotype that is happening a bit earlier on at around blastocyst stage, and then there's developmental delay and a problem with, uh, with specification of one of the lineages, the primitive endoderm. And this is really interesting because um, or we saw the same phenotype um, um, early on if you, if you just knocked out the, um, the oocyte pool. That is important only actually in the first two divisions where, where you know, the, the pool from the oocyte is happening. So we get we disrupt the process very early on and we get a phenotype a few days later um, on a lineage that has not even been programmed yet at the time when gene was lost. So, so this is something about um, com coming back to the idea that epigenetics could be um, influencing the potential of cells in the future. So you can have, um, you can have a problem very early on and there's some kind of um, memory that is badly established that then will become apparent only when cells need to make decisions um, a few days later. So I, th I thought that was actually quite quite intriguing that um, that we saw the phenotype very specific and, and quite late. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, moving on in your career, uh, you then moved on to do a postdoc in Edith Hertz lab and switched the GEARS into the field of X inactivation. Um, the first paper of your postdoc uh, focused on the uh, of an, uh, on an epigenomic roadmap of the initiation of X chromosome inactivation. Um, could you walk us through the events that led lead to in X inactivation? Indeed. So just to give you a bit of context, I mean, I think, you know, from these early studies in G9A, what I, what I found and what I found intriguing is that looking at steady states um, in epigenetics, for me, I think at this point does not make sense anymore. 
it's important to look at transitions. It's important to look when genes are becoming activated or repressed, where epigenetic regulation might actually be playing a much more, much more important role. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to, to start working on X chromosome activation, because it's truly the most beautiful, one of the most, two most beautiful, let's say, uh, examples of um, epigenetics. Um, and that's imprinting and X chromosome activation. So I obviously came from a lab that historically was studying and imprinting. I mean, Nazim Sarani, uh, my supervisor in my PhD, he, you know, he, he co-discovered um, genomic imprinting. Um, and then Edith Hurd um, has really um, uh, uncovered the mechanisms underlying X chromosome activation. And I think the reason why it's a beautiful model um, links again to the problem that I mentioned before, that it's really difficult to study the function of a chromatin mark because it's in mammalian systems, it's almost impossible to, um, or very difficult to disrupt the mark um, directly. You have to do it by disrupting the activity of the enzyme that must, might be methylating or acetylating um, non-histone targets. So it's really difficult to understand if the processes that you regulate are truly epigenetic. So are they really happening in, in cis? Is there a real a memory on the chromatin or not? An X chromosome gives you um, an, an amazing model to study this because you start, you're starting from a female cell that contains two chromosomes, of two X chromosomes that are potentially identical. And yet one of them gets silenced and the other not which means these two molecules, these two chromosomes um, are in the same environment, uh, in the same nucleus, the same transcription factor uh, factors um, are surrounding them. So they're exposed to the same transacting factors. And yet on the transcriptional level and on the chromatin level, they behave drastically different. So this has to be something that is happening on chromatin and that is linked to non-coding RNAs, in this case exist, um, I think, again, uh, paradigm of studying um, non-coding RNAs. Um, and um, the chromatin changes that exist um, can induce some chromatin. And this was really the beginning um, uh, of this project. We, we knew what an inactive X chromosome looks like. We knew that it's silent. We knew that it accumulates many of the repressive histone modifications. We knew that it's depleted of many of the active histone modifications. But what we didn't know is how do you start, how do you go from a fully active chromosome looking basically like an autosome to almost completely silenced um, chromosome? And this can happen in, um, in some systems in one or two days. So it's a rapid process, but there's those many levels of epigenetic information, many levels of chromatin marks, and what is the choreography of these, um, of these events? This is really what we wanted to study. And what did you find about this choreography? Yes, yeah, so um, now I'm coming actually to answer your question <laughs> initially. So what we found is, um, well, obviously the first step, it's um, coding one of the chromosomes in cis by mm, exist, a non-coding RNA. Well, this we know before, but um, this happens quite quickly. And then once it hits the chromatin, the next step that happens is that gene silencing is induced and concurrently. So at the same time, enhancers and promoters are starting to lose um, acetylation marks. So that's really a very, very early step. And at the same time, intergenic regions are starting to accumulate P53 
PRC1 dependent marks. So polycom complex, repressive complex one dependent mark, which is um with which is H2A lysine um, 119 ubiquitylation. So um, these are the really the first events. Intergenic accumulation of repressive, um, potentially repressive mark, and within the enhancers and promoters, loss of acetylation. And this is happening at the same time as gene silencing is induced. And then what is happening a bit later is loss of the typical lysine 4 marks that are associated with um, enhancers and promoters. And really the last stage is spreading of the repressive polycom 1 mark into the gene bodies and into the enhancers and promoters. And this is then followed by only the accumulation of H3K27 trimethylation, so a polycom 2 mark which is really the last event that we could find in our, uh, we, could, we could see in our system. So there's a whole precise choreography of the events. But what is important is that, okay, this is not happening at the same time on the X chromosome. Some regions are getting silenced more quickly than others. And that is really linked to where the exist-known coding RNA uh, is binding. Yeah, the, the most intriguing thing or question about this process uh, that I always think about is, How do you make sure that it's not happening at the same time on both X chromosomes? <laughs> Because at some point you need to decide, well, you can move on and you can't move on. Please stop. Um, do you have any uh, answers to that? Well, um, not from my work. Um, okay. We were using um, a stem cell line where we can induce X chromosome inactivation coming from one X chromosome only because it has a docs-inducible, docsacyclin-inducible mm -hmm. um, exist gene. So we kind of um, totally overruled the natural choice okay. that the cells need to make. And that is a choice that is normally random. So each cell will individually decide whether to inactivate the, parent, uh, the paternal or the maternal um, allele. Um, and this choice, um, I mean, it, it's not easy to study, but I think there's beautiful work from Edda Schultz lab who has created um, mathematical models of how this choice is being made. Um, and what she finds, it's a complex regulatory network where initially the two chromosomes are equivalent and they can become silenced. They can induce, stably induce um, exist uh, activation. But then um, you need activators of exist and also repressors of exist that are happening in, um, in cis to achieve this kind of choice. Um, and it's all about those, but I think I'm not the right one, yeah. the right person to be introducing this this topic. But um, but it, I think for me that one thing is choice, and the other thing is that actually we know even less about is you start expressing this exists this fantastic long encoding RNA, and how is it able to coat only one of the two X chromosomes from which it becomes expressed in cis? So it's coding the entirety of the chromosome. And yet it doesn't jump onto the other chrome, uh, other autosomes or um, uh, or the other allele. So how does it uh, stick to only one chromosome? Uh, I, I I mean, maybe there's there's some data out there um, on this, but for me, that's still um, quite, uh, quite a mystery. So I don't want to uh, question more work that you haven't done. <laughs> Rather, uh, yes, since 2020, which I mentioned before, you are now running your own group uh, in Copenhagen. Um, the obvious, obvious question uh, is now, how did you decide on what to focus on? And 
what are you working on right now? So <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Um, on your website, you list like three uh, main areas. Maybe we can touch all of them uh, uh, briefly um, and maybe not uh, revealing too much too much of your work but uh, what you can still can share um, so the first one was like function of chromatin modifiers during development and differentiation so this is um i would say these kind of projects it's, it's a bit follow-up of what i've been doing always so looking at specific chromatin modifiers we found during my phd um an intriguing role of g9a We actually worked and published also in, in the original paper a little bit more on Polycom 2 complex in, in vivo. So it's really from that side. And, and then um, in, uh, in Paris, um, we found that there's a key regulator of chromatin that regulates and that allows efficient gene silencing to occur during um, um, X chromosome activation, and that is HDAC3, so a histone deacetylase, a very specific one. Um, so now we're following up and looking at um, at some um, chromatin modifiers and understanding what role they have in the dynamic processes occurring in development. So again, when an embryo implants, when a blastocyst forms, and maybe also the in vitro models. So it's a bit of a follow up, let's say, mainly of the work, the type of work that we've been doing quite extensively before, but in the whole lab, we're always interested in um, in key problem in epigenetics and actually even more so in metabolomics and that is um, specificity so how specificity could be achieved in chromatin regulation why some genes are so responsive to, to loss of chromatin modifiers and others not so these are really the type of questions that we're, we're trying to address in, in these type of um, projects so this this then maybe the third uh, category I wrote down is it epigenetic and metabolic coupling during mouse development, right? So, uh, what does this include? Uh, metabolic coupling means influence from yes. the environment, from the mother, or what? What are you um, looking at there? So we're, we're taking quite a broad perspective here, but maybe just to to give it a little bit of introduction. So people have been working extensively on metabolism for decades, um, obviously. And historically, people were focusing on the production of energy, um, that the main role of metabolism and production of biomass, so the building blocks of life. And that's why, obviously, metabolism, um, two main reasons why metabolism is so important, also in early development, because we, placental mammals, are completely dependent in, through gestation on uh, the mother on the environment of the embryo of the fetus um, to produce energy, but also to produce building blocks um, of the organism that needs to grow. But it became clear um, in the last decade or so that there is non-canonical functions of metabolism. And these involve directly regulating chromatin modifications and epigenetics, and actually also directly regulating some of the signaling pathways. And the way that this can happen is, again, on many levels, but we're focusing on the most direct way. And that is where um, a metabolic state of a cell will result in a specific availability of, um, of some of the small metabolites that are involved in producing energy or biomass. But these, um, these small molecules, for example, S-adenosylmethionine, or acetylcoenzyme A, or alpha-ketoglutrate, and, and others, also happen to be cofactors or even substrates for chromatin modifi modifications. So let me give you an example. So 
um, you cannot acetylate histones if you don't have acetyl coenzyme A because it is the substrate and donor of the acetyl group. You cannot methylate DNA without the universal mm, methyl donor, so S adenosyl methionine. And the levels of these factors will be very sensitive to the environment, but also to the internal wiring of, um, um, of, um, of the metabolism. So there is a direct link, but how important is it? We know that if you change an environment, you might have result in slightly different epigenetic states. We know that changing the metabolism will result um, in epigenetic changes. But are these functionally important? Are these mediating the processes involved in de regulating development? Are these regulating specific gene, gene um, outcomes? Well, we believe um, that they do, and, and we have some, some data, data to prove it. Um, I think one of the more beautiful examples of that actually comes from the stem cell field, um, from papers like Carry It All, but also uh, from work uh, from the Azim Sarayan's lab, where um, they found that a specific molecule, alpha-catagglutrate, um, um, in vitro, and when you work with stem cells, will be regulating a very specific transcriptional program. And that is the program of exiting naive pluripotency and entering prime pluripotency. So it's not regulating all genes. It's regulating a specific transcriptional program. How does it do that? Does it do it through chromatin? Does it do it through uh, regulating um, signaling pathways? I think there's a lot of open questions here. Um, and we're trying to apply some of the tools that we used to use for epigenetics field and now implement them in metabolism to start getting molecular understanding of how these networks are established and, and how do they regulate um, each other. And if a single component is even the cause and not like many at different levels. I think, so this is the challenge. So the big, for me at least, the challenge in the field of, I call it epimetabolomics. So it's linked between epigenetics and metabolism and more and more people working on it. Um, and actually, um, historically, stem cell field has not been the first one to work on it. We have beautiful work done in cancer where we know that this regulation is so important. We know that because some of the leukemias, for example, often hit um, TCA, TCA enzymes. So enzymes that are, for example, involved in production of alpha-catagutrate. And we produce whole new metabolites that are now competitive, that are now competing for, um, for the binding um, with alpha-catagutrate to chromatin modifiers. So we have beautiful examples understanding that this link is very important in cancer, for example. We know we have some examples also in stem cells, but the real challenge is how do we understand which function of metabolism is really important? Which function of metabolism is really driving, um, uh, for example, specific transcriptional outcomes? Maybe it's just indirect through energy production and sensing of the energy production by, I don't know, mTOR pathways. Maybe it's something to do with mitochondria. Maybe um, it has something to do with appropriate production of, um, 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 of substrates for, for DNA or for RNA. Um, maybe it has something to do with regulating chromatin. But if so, which part of chromatin, which chromatin marks are actually recipients of this information? Um, and again, which genes are responding and why. So I think this is 
the real problem and my guess is that the answer will be quite convoluted it is not going to be one single pathway uh, there will be probably cooperative um, functions of many different pathways but I think we need to start understanding how um, how these complex regulatory systems are coupled um, and how can they achieve specific um, outcomes. Um, again, this links to a general bi question in biology, so how specificity can be, can be achieved in such complex re regulatory pathways. Now, this will be very interesting to see what uh, comes out of your lab in the next couple of years <laughs> in this area. Um, the third uh, area I, I found is the mechanisms underlying facultative heterochromatin formation. This is maybe the, the follow-up of the X-inactivation uh, work. Uh, am I correct? Yes, yes. So, so we're, we, we don't really work a lot on X-chromosome inactivation, but we're still very much interested um, in it. So, so we do dab a little bit um, into this um, because it's still one of the best um, models of, um, of, um, of epigenetic regulation. So... The way we think about it a bit more indeed is, is a model for what epigenetic regulation can be. So um, is it that what we found genome, fine genome-wide, is it also applicable to X chromosome inactivation or genomic imprinting? Um, because if it is, then, then we have a much more direct, um, let's say, handle on understanding how, how this epigenetic um, information might, might be, what roles it might play. So indeed, um, this we're definitely looking at facultative heterochromatin. Um, X chromosome inactivation is one example um, of that. But I'm particularly excited always about um, the moment where the embryo implants. The reason for that is um, actually there's many reasons for that. On one hand side is because not a lot of people were able to study it because it's just not a very easy process. It's not a very, the embryo is very small. The uterus is very large. Um, it's difficult to find the embryo. It's difficult to, to dissect it. There's not a lot of cells, uh, but now we have tools to study very, um, you know, at very low levels, chromatin modifications and map them uh, from very few cells. Um, but it's also a moment where the majority of facultative heterochromatin um, is actually accumulating so, um, it, and it's also a moment where transcriptional changes are happening very dynamically. And from the metabolic side, it's a moment where um, the embryo becomes almost completely shut off from oxygen supply. So um, the environment changes, the metabolism changes, um, the, the chromatin um, are also, um, is, is dynamically reprogrammed. Um, and it's be becoming programmed to look something a little bit more like um, like somatic cells, even though it's not yet somatic cells in most cases. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Many times, yes. I think that's <laughs> that's kind of the point of doing science. I think because you 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 um, you have some great ideas, you have some great hypotheses, and then and then you realize that um, they might not be true, um, and that's okay um, when they're not true because usually you find something else. It's much more frustrating when you're not able to answer the question, <laughs> which is I think the you know the, the 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 more difficult part. And and I think this is this is just the bread and butter of. Um, Uh, of doing doing science if you're trying to be at the cutting edge um there will be things that will not work out i mean i remember 
during my PhD, um, we I worked also um, a bit on Stella, so another an, another molecule, and um, there was a follow up study um, that 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 shown um, quite quite nice things. But on the molecular level, I remember at that time we could really not get a handle of what's happening. Um, so we weren't able to answer very basic questions, and um, and it was difficult. It's also very frustrating when you're trying to do something that is about repeating other people's work, um, and you also cannot repeat it for for one reason or the other. Often linked to you using a slightly different model, but um, but those are the real frustrations, let's say. In the last 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about maybe your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Mm. Well, I think throughout my work, um, we've been really focusing on chromatin modifiers um, and how they might be regulating development. Um, and I think for me, the, the most exciting findings that that we had was during um, was during my during my postdoc when we were looking at X chromosome inactivation, um, and we were able really to start pinpointing the molecular function of individual chromatin modifiers on chromatin on um, uh, on the inactive X chromosome, and I think for me. All the work that we've done so far has been pointing to uh, to one thing: is that chromatin is really important, but it's very rarely a trigger for transcriptional change. It is not, um, mo in most cases, um, the the main way of silencing or activating genes. That does not mean that it's not important. Um, it is often a feedback loop uh, that allows very rapid activation or allows very rapid inactivation of genes. But it's not, I don't think about it anymore as a trigger. And I think another point that we didn't discuss that much, much is we often focus on a single chromatin mark. And obviously in that chromatin environment, there's so many different marks. So there's so much compensation um, from one modification to another. You know, there's beautiful work showing that if you mutate histones on specific modification, on specific residues, so for example, not allowing specific histone acetylation marks to occur, you actually get very little transcriptional change. Why can that be? Is it just because it's not important? Well, my interpretation is that, you know, when you remove one mark, often others can compensate, especially when it comes to acetylation. And that's why it's so difficult to disentangle these processes while if, if we're, if we're really focusing on, on, on just one uh, individual chromatin modification. And we definitely found it as well in next chromosome inactivation, where there's so many different layers of how chromatin is being programmed. So, um, so again, looking a little bit, um, zooming out a little bit is, is, is always useful. So thank you, Jan, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com 
and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.